Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. Great, so here we are. I'm Sam Truitt. And I'm Andrew McCarran. And I'm Sparrow. And we're here to talk about breath. And so, Andrew, you had some opening remarks or I'm just, yeah, I mean, I'm struck by obviously how foundational um, breath and breathing are, to state the obvious. And breathing and breath have been um, everywhere in our culture as well. Of course, I think of the tragedy of George Floyd. Um, language that was uttered by Eric Garner a few years earlier on Staten Island. He couldn't breathe either. In and church. famously lampooned by Donald Trump at a rally where he was ridiculing Eric Garner for saying, I can't breathe. Is that Ooh. so? Is it recently? Uh, I think we're after the Eric Garner death. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sad. As a joke. Is, yeah, as a joke. It's not surprising, but still deeply troubling and startling to hear that. Yeah. Breath also is the activity of COVID contagion. Oh. Right? I mean, we're covering our mouths. We have to be careful about how we breathe and where we breathe. Very much um, breath consciousness. I know I'm pointing to all of these shadows of breathing, but um, they're there. Um, just this morning, I was looking at the New York Times and I read an article on how wildfires in California have made it challenging to breathe. Oh. But it's something that we have to do. We have to do to survive. So um, I, I think it's a great thing for us to discuss in the podcast. Where do you guys want to go with it? Who would like to begin? Maybe we can ask a question of breath. or. Well, I guess I have kind of an opposite opinion already, which is, you know, I've been looking through piles and piles of books from Western literature, and I can't really find breath. I was just reading um, the uh, uh, Edward Gibbons book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, uh, the uh, Boswell's Life of Johnson. I'm looking mm-hmm. in kind of like, you know, I, I was sure the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, I just had it in my mind that there was some kind of cosmic breath of God uh, mentioned, but I kind of skimmed the book and couldn't find it. It seems like it, I don't know. This is my whatever opinion at the moment is that Western civilization is very unconscious of the breath and that hasn't really that's caught its different. breath yet. What's that? It hasn't really caught its breath yet. Yeah. It hasn't reached. Well, actually, one of the thoughts I had was that, uh, uh Descartes in his famous meditations, he said, I think, therefore I am. You know, in other words, he puts himself in a enclosed space. He closes his eyes. He shuts out all outer uh, experience. And then he notices, I'm thinking. But he doesn't notice that he's breathing. He's also breathing. But in the West, we think. And in the East, we breathe. You know, I think Eastern religion is kind of based on breath. And Western religion is based maybe on thought. And it makes sense that Allen Ginsberg did both with his mind breaths. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and with the line, 
he had this idea that the length of your line in poetry should be the length of your breath, which, uh, and, and I guess he had a good uh, lungs because he had a long lines. Yeah, he did have a long line. And was that, did he um, incubate that thought after his interest in the East or, or was that out of jazz? Or out of Whitman. I mean, it seems to me that, that Whitman's that, breath. That Whitman, uh, that Ginsburg's lines are just straight stolen from Whitman. I mean, Whitman supposedly, I read this article that I've never been able to forget about Whitman's obsession with opera. Opera was pretty recent then. Yes. Opera was kind of like rock and roll was for like my generation, you know, for the people in 1968. The opera hit, you know, with a, with a bang and people were crazy for opera. And opera is very, what's the word, conspicuously about breath and about long lines that can be uh, sung in one long breath. And maybe that inspired Whitman's line. I don't know. I know. Yeah, Whitman, Whitman was also a big enthusiast of public speaking. He loved to hear speeches, anybody declaiming in public. Um, huh. Hmm. was uh, a similarly operatic event for, you know, for Whitman. And also a very big 19th century vogue. Like uh, like when I wrote this novel recently about Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln at one point, I think, when he was not much was going on in his life, he was going to become a, a lecturer. He had a lecture. He invented this lecture on inventions, old and new, something like that. He went around giving this lecture, which apparently was awful. And, uh, <laughs> and in it, he referred to Negroes as an invent invention. Like it's one of like the really embarrassing ideas of, of Lincoln. Chin, I'm confused. I think so. I think he felt that, you know, in other words, slaves were a kind of invention. They could, they were like, uh, like a dishwasher, you know, like our, we have all these electric machines that do things for us. They invented the idea of slaves. That uh, I think that's what he meant. And, you know, it's a very uh, cost-effective way to get things done. So he didn't mean that slavery, the institution, was an invention or that um, race on some level was an invention. You think that he was referring to people as utility? I think thing. I don't think he literally meant that white people invented Negroes, as he put it. Sure. I think he used the word Negroes. I don't know if we can even whatever, you know, conclude this in our... We, we've, just been we've just been officially canceled. Well, there's, yeah. yeah, we've self-canceled. This will have actually. to require some further research and maybe could be lumped in with our Sally Hemings uh, podcast. Oh, yeah. Well, do you think that the breath is enslaved to us, or are we <laughs> enslaved to the breath? <laughs> I think that's the decision every person has to make. You know, I know. The I feel like Descartes made a certain decision. Like, there was a crossroads, you know? If it is, as you say, that he entered into an experimental state and sought to, you know, put into quiescence his sensorium and sort of pick through and see what essential thing was left. Mm. You know, he could have just said, he could have gone the other way. What, towards breath? Yeah, said, oh, I'm breathing and I'm thinking. And that would have led to Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> breath. Yeah. 
Yeah. But maybe we're better off without a 17th century Allen Ginsberg. Yeah. I think breath is a interesting word inherently, which comes from the old English word, uh, breath, B R, and then the diphthong, the A E diphthong, and then at the end of thorn. So it actually, breath is what, you know, is the word. And what it originally meant was, uh, odor, huh. odor and a scent. And also, you know, kind of stink originally, like a, uh, the word originally. Smell. Yeah. Huh. And I think also, you know, breath, we breathe in the translucence, the, the isn't that what Whitman called it? This translucent vapor. Hmm. And it's clear and whatever it is, or, you know, maybe in California now, of course, it's, it's, um, it's really hard with the smoke in the air. Yeah. But then when you breathe out, it has, sometimes it can have another taste or another smell, hmm. particularly to other humans. Like you can have what's called bad breath. Yeah. Halitosis. Yeah. 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 Which was invented by Listerine. Yeah. I'm going to share this with my daughter because Sophia, who's seven, does not like my breath. Hmm. That uh, even though I brush my teeth and no one has complained that I have bad breath, um, hmm. at least not to my face, she's she has such a strong response to my breath at certain moments of the day. But um, she'll just move away in abject horror, huh. <laughs> demanding hmm. that I brush my teeth. But I read somewhere that if you do have bad breath. Not everyone can smell it, just like on B.O. What do you mean? Only certain people are, are sensitive to it, like? Yeah, like, um, but I'm on a real tangent, and I don't have any research to draw from, so let, let's move back to Sam's point. Maybe you should take this mouthwash that our dentist is making. Me and Sam go to Dr. Zinus. Oh, Victor. And he's yeah, inventing yeah, he gets... this new mouthwash. And ah. he gave me the prototype. It was really great. I'm a, I'm a mouthwash hater. But, uh, I mean, I'm a kind of morally and whatever the word is politically against mouthwash. But, yeah. you know, I had just gone to the dental hygienist. They offered me a free mouthwash. I tried it and it's all very pure. It's just a series of essential oils. Yeah. With maybe a little bit of water. He's still working on the formula, perfecting it, trying to make it a little taste a little better. But it uh, feels so pure. Yeah. 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 It's got a great finish. You know, I would say <laughs> it's got this gingery engine to it that really nice. suffuses. It seems to really permeate, you know, the whole mouth. I thought it was, uh, you know, very clarifying, actually. Yeah, yeah I think it, was on to something. it really changed my whole view of mouthwash, that there could be a kind of benevolent mouthwash. Yeah, yeah. Um. I'm curious. I've been thinking a lot about breath lately, not only because of this podcast, but for two reasons. Can I share them? Yeah, sure. The first reason is um, once my daughter was born, I'm bringing up my daughter quite a bit in this podcast. I, for some reason, I became petrified of public speaking. Huh. After my daughter was born, I can't, you know, I did a lot of public speaking in, in certain cases in front of hundreds of people. And at academic conferences, poetry readings, classrooms, large groups of parents, assemblies. But when Sophia was born in 2013, something, huh. I don't know if it was metabolic or spiritual, 
But one of the symptoms of this shift was that um, I began to um, experience some degree of stage fright and my esophagus would um, constrict Hmm. and I would have a Hmm. hard time breathing, a hard time um, enunciating, making language in a Hmm. confident, clear way. Uh, and I tried a number of things. I tried different teas. I tried um, a mantra. <laughs> I even Ooh. tried half a tab of Xanax. But the only thing that um, works and has worked consistently since uh, since I've discovered it is a breathing technique huh. of breathing in four seconds and then through my nose and then exhaling for eight seconds. Huh. Mm-hmm. I can do that six or seven times. It has a profoundly transformative effect. I just mm-hmm. feel tranquil <gasps> and composed. And it's, it's the only thing that's worked. And um, I don't think a lot about breathing and breath because I've always been able to do it just fine. So mm-hmm. um, I just wanted to share that. Where yeah, did you learn that? A therapist told me about it. Uh-huh. She said it was Buddhist. I don't know what tradition of Buddhism she was referring to, but she thought mm. it would be a helpful strategy, and it really was. Mm. There are various timing sequences of counting and timing your breath. You know, I know that one of them is uh, five seconds, five seconds breathing in, and then holding for 10 seconds, mm. and then doing an out-breath. And doing that maybe three times and then breathing normally and then going back to that pattern. Hmm. But I, I think part of it is just that sense of breathing in completely, hmm. feeling the whole of your lungs, both lungs, you know, and you can even feel when you breathe in like that, that your lungs are slightly asymmetrical, that your hmm. right lung is a little larger, you know, because you have your heart which is nestled in your left lung, and that breathing in long, and then that pause, you know, that Mm. pause is where you hold. And there are, you know, ways of ratcheting that up. You can sometimes hold as long as 19 seconds and Mm. breathe in at a much slower rate and Mm. breathe out in a controlled way and so on. Um, But it's true that breath is this door to inner sensation that probably is more dynamic than most other avenues of getting physically or sensationally connected to our inner, you know, to our bodies. Yeah. Sparrow, I have a mutual friend with Sam named Kyth. Um, um, K-Y- E-T-H-E. Is that it, Sam? Kite? Oh, yeah. K-Y-T-H-E. Isn't that it? Oh, K-Y-T-H-E. Kyth Heller. Yeah. And she is a doctoral student in the study of religion at Harvard and has been for many, many years. And she's an oh. artist. She's a poet. She's a performance artist. Hmm. She runs something called Vision Lab, which is a spiritual think tank or artistic think tank, if you will. And Kaith is really big into Kundalini yoga. And she demonstrated Kundalini breathing and explained it in a way that was reminiscent of what Sam just said in terms of that elemental return to creatureliness, to, to groundedness, and a means through which to transform consciousness. Mm. 
Yeah. I think that there is... I was thinking that maybe we could do that as an aspect of this podcast. Oh, yeah. Is to actually... I have I thought up of a sort of an experiment, you know, related to each of us breathing and then talking about what that feels like so that mm. we get into our anti-Descartian inner craft. And instead of being so much in this sort of like ergo sum thing, be more just like with our breath and talk about our sensation. Maybe we're not ready for it just yet, but I just thought that might be a good aspect in our study, you know, and our practice toward becoming connoisseurs of breath. <laughs> I think I think one aspect of breath that we might want to touch on is its inimitable, illimitable connection to speech, mm-hmm. connection to to this out breath. Generally, it's just with the out breath that we create mm. shapes of sound that Mm. then, you know, we all have these expe- accepted sound shapes that mean something to each other. And and it's all breath. It's all based on this, this drawing in and drawing out. To punctuate what Sam said is a quotation from Sappho. Oh, wow. Very well-known quotation. And here it is, because it fits like a glove. It takes my breath away, in fact. And here it is, Sappho. <laughs> Although only perishable breath, words which I command are immortal. Mm. What translation? I don't know because I just pulled it off the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although only breath, words which I command are immortal. And I I, I too, Sam, was interested in the relationship between breath and speech. Mm. And what happens to a breath through speech that it it's out there in the world in a way that may um, long outlast our corporeal envelope our lungs our organs our physical Hmm. you mean that our exhalations the shape of our exhalations in words this is one thing is that's something that can last you know that maybe hmm. they get transcribed you know there's modes of transmission but I, what I hear you're also saying is that our actual exhalations will be around much longer than we will. That the exhalation, what we breathe out into the world, also endures. Yeah. And that we can affect the world through how, through our outbreaths. I think that's an interesting yeah. trope. In that, yeah. there's that, that, that Tibetan Buddhist practice of Tonglin. Mm. Where you where you where you breathe in suffering, oh, and then in the exhalation you breathe out compassion, mm. and that compassion through the breath plants a meritorious karmic seed in the universe mm-hmm. that will um, find its way to the source of suffering that you're you're breathing compassion toward. Mm. Yeah. Tong Len, you, you visualize a person also, you can direct it towards somebody who's sick or having a difficult time or mm. in some way obscured. And you, what you do is you breathe, you imagine their body, preferably naked. You imagine their body and you breathe in 
uh, a kind of smoke, a sort of acrid smoke, like that which is laying all up and down the coast of the west, you know, uh, up and down the west coast. So you breathe in, and sometimes you can even imagine like there's spiders and um, slugs and snakes and, you know, unpleasant things that you're breathing in off of them. And then as you breathe out, you breathe out a rainbow light over their body, Mm. up and down over their body and into their eyes and into their mouths. And that's the practice of Tonglen. Really, uh, over the summer when my father was gravely ill, a form of this was the only thing that helped me. I don't have much of a spiritual strategy in this world. You know, I consider myself a spiritual person, but I can't point to strategies that I have. But that that strategy, that practice, um, gave me um, something. I, I can't quite put it into words, but it helped. It helped me find courage and express compassion without being, I guess, um, crippled by fear and anxiety. Mm. It was a breakthrough, I, 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 and I, I, it, I had forgotten it until this moment. Mm-hmm. Wow. And also in some literal way, when you breathe out, you're keeping all the creatures, uh, the plant creatures alive, because we're breathing out the carbon dioxide that they need to breathe in. So it is like a kind of literal compassion that you're showing to uh, everything that photosynthesizes. And, yeah. you know, since I have these close friends or kind of mentors that are trees, it's something I think about how they're breathing out what I need to breathe in, I'm breathing out what they need to breathe in. It's yeah. kind of a metaphor, but also kind of, you know, it's also literal. Yeah, Lovely. exchanging breath. On a planetary level, we're exchanging breath with the flora. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just literal. It's just well, obviously true. And in some, in so many ways, like trees, particularly trees are the ones that I'm kind of talking to. You know, they're kind of the opposite of us. Like they can't move. We can move. They're much taller than us. They're much um, happier than us. You know, like, you know, they they seem much more kind of in touch with what their dharma, what they need to be doing. You know, they're doing what they need to be doing, and we're, we're always confused, you know. And we have all sorts of motion that they can't do. Mm. They have to wait the, for a, a breeze to come before they can dance. We can move at will our, our limbs. <laughs> yeah, which is sort of partially our curse, maybe. The one thing I would say, too, is that when I'm in the woods or when, like now, I'm looking out on a uh, bunch of trees, I feel that they're the real inhabitants of this earth. Hmm. The first gods were trees. That's T.S. Eliot's line? No, the other T.S. Eliot, Robert Kelly, the Eliot of the Hudson Valley. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the first gods were trees. But I, nice. I, you know, I teach I teach these ethics courses, right, at my school, and um, maybe it's because it's an urban school. It's very hard to get my students to think about non-human life uh-huh. in, in their notion of the social contract in terms of 
moral responsibilities and um, reciprocity of life forms. And they just don't go there. They just see it as a separate, even if they're pro-conservation and and anti-pollution, just on a spiritual level, they don't really uh, make that connection. I think you're, the idea of the um, the sharing of breath, the exchange of breath, is such a um, profound and uh, easy way of trying to get them to to think mm-hmm. otherwise. But I'm gonna I'm gonna try that in my teaching. It's yeah, that's very interesting. Very lovely. And so obviously true. And I grew up in Manhattan, so I I understand that you, that feeling of being kind of that you you don't need nature. In Manhattan, you don't feel you need it somehow. Although it happens that I grew up in Inwood, the neighborhood I grew up in Inwood is named after the fact that it's, you know, the most, uh, you know, rural part of Manhattan. There's surround, you're surrounded by woods and it's hilly. So the, the, the can't, the capitalists couldn't turn everything into valuable real estate because it was some of it just, you can't live on it's too mountainous it's right really interesting well the one thing i wanted to ask you sparrow as a student of the talmud and uh, the books of the tribes of israel is i thought that you know yohi veha is that how you say it what yohi veha oh you mean god yeah yeah, you don't say it. You're not supposed to say it as Jews. Oh yeah, that's what makes you a Jew is that you don't say it. <laughs> but as a uh, boy, well, I can say it. Yes, I, I had thought that the Yohiveha, which may not be quite the right words, but it's near there. And if it's not the right words, that's probably better because you don't want to say the word that would kill you. Yes, the I thought that that represented the shape of a breath. That sound, that word? Yeah. Huh. I mean, no one knows what it means. Actually, I'm sure Andrew knows more about this than me. But, I mean, it's uh, it seems like it's related to the word for being. You know, that's my understanding. It, to the extent that it seems to have a meaning, it would be more like being than breath. I mean, the thing, I was thinking about the Bible, too, and I was thinking, well... I think there are two origin myths of humanity, and in one of them, in the book of Genesis, and I think in one of them, God breathes into the clay and makes people uh, alive. He gives us the breath of life. And I think there's another version where God doesn't breathe into us. Is that right? Do you know that? It just kind of appear um, in one of them. There are two accounts. One was written, I think, by the Yahwist, and the other by the priestly author. I did take a course on source criticism where you looked at the various narratives, Hmm. you know, um, and attributed them to various authors and communities. So, yeah, there are two. There are two. But do you remember if God breathes life into one version, but not the other version? Correct. He breathes um, into the the, the dust. It becomes Adam through his breath entering into the earth. And then the other version is God created them male and female, as if he kind of made them at once. Correct. Uh, Yeah. And that is, I think, the version where he just kind of molds them like clay, doesn't breathe into them. (laughs) I thought the Yohi Veha, that it referred to the four points of the breath. 
Yo-hi-ve-ha. And huh. the yo, breathe in. Ve is the hold. Yo-hi-ve is the letting go. And then the ah is, you know, yo-hi-ve. Yo-hi-ve-ha. And then the ha is the empty breath, you know, at the end. So you have two points of fullness, emptiness, and then the breathing in and breathing out is the fourfold structure of the at least human breath. That's brilliant. Yeah, I think you must have met some mystic uh, Kabbalist who told you this that uh, I never ran into. I've never uh, heard that. No. I mean, it's yeah. great. It's interesting. Yeah, because, I mean, breath has to do with air, and so it has to do with spirit and blah, you know, and it is, it is our, it is this vehicle. I mean, is there anything else that you can breathe in and then feel your whole body suffused with the wash of that experience and that breath? You can. Uh, there's really alcohol. Because, you know, when I was reading, um, uh, the ruby out of Omar Khayyam. I couldn't find any breath, but I could find lots of wine. And uh -huh. uh, I mean, I don't drink myself, but you drink a glass of wine and it kind of warms your whole body or any kind of alcohol. It kind of passes through your body almost similarly to the way breath does. Right. A different, a different sense, a slightly different sense in a longer time. And a different, I mean, because with breath, you have a certain amount of levity, whereas with alcohol, you tend to have more gravity. It tends to sort of, but I don't know, that's a mixed bag. Yeah, it's a good point. Certain things that we can see, for example, if you look upon a tree, you know, you may have an experience of that kind of communion, you know, that sort of inner sense through the oh. eyes that, you know, you become full of the vision or in a way hear, like a breath i mean hear, hearing might be even closer to breathing because you, oh. you hear let's lately i'm listening to these bach cantatas that i got a box set of records at the food pantry yeah. <laughs> sometimes they give out you know classical music at the food pantry and maybe i'm the only person who takes it so i'm listening to so i'll listen for like 40 seconds to a Bach cantata, and I'll just be like, whoa, it's amazing. And then I guess if you heard the cantata, and then, you know, that's your in-hearing, yeah. and then you're, and then you would, would you, how would you exhale the cantata? Like, how would that, you know, how would you bring it back out into the world? Maybe, you know, you'd write an aphorism. Huh. Or just you know, write speech. a line of poetry. Like, yeah, I mean, you've noticed, like, when you Through read... speech, yeah. I mean, I, it's tricky, because you have to jump tracks, you know? Um, <laughs> it's, it's still in the same... It's still in the same system. And the same thing with alcohol is that you breathe it, you know, you drink it, and then you, you I guess you urinate it, or sweat it out, or breathe it out, you know, but it's different. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There isn't that same in going in and coming out. I, I mean, I think there is a little bit for me, like when I listen to 40 seconds of a cantata and then I turn it off and I walk around, it is a little bit like I'm exhaling it. You know, it's like I've stopped it 
to kind of process it somehow. And what I was going to say, like you're reading Robert Frost. Like I, like I was listening actually for a while to a record of Robert Frost. I don't particularly like Robert Frost, but you know, I had this record and I was listening to it. And then when you say to your wife, well, uh, how was your day today? Some of the intonations of Robert Frost enter your speech the same uh, way. Like you speak and you're listening to cantatas. There's a little bit of a kind of, and so uh, that, that, that rhythm kind of enters your, your, uh, your speech. It sort of frames or it's like a filter, uh, like a screen or a filter or begin or informs the shape of your, uh, umvault. Uh, <laughs> you're not sensorium, but your attitude, your umvault, uh, umvault. Isn't, it, isn't that what it's called? The German word umvault, so, equilibrium. Your no, yeah. it's sort of like the space in which you're operating with the world. You know, the geometry, your theater geometry. of operation. What the geometry of the self? It's like your geometry, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone has a distinct. I was going to say your tonality, tonality, but. But geometry is good too. I found with the, the the professors who were I was most enamored with. I I found myself like you, Sparrow, recapitulating phrases and just hitting on uh-huh. tones in my own speech that uh-huh. intimated the influence of the um, the professor or the person I looked up to, the teacher, without yeah. without being conscious of it. Yeah, you start to imitate them. Yeah, um, in subtle ways. Yeah. Aspects a lot, of are become part of you. A lot of teaching, I understand, in some small measure, is seeking to displace a set of your vocabulary into them so huh. that then they speak those words and those phrases and the concepts that underlie them back to you. Huh. Um, so that, that mimicry is actually super important. I read this crazy thing lately. I don't know. I don't think I told you this. I was reading this book about Lenin by uh, Lenin, Vladimir Lenin, the revolutionary, yeah. by uh, Maxim Gorky. It was a book that belonged to my father. I sort of probably stole it from my father, published by the International Press, like the Communist Front Press in like 1930, I think. And one of the things Gorky noticed about uh, Lenin is that he was constantly saying, hmm, 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 making these little thinking sounds aloud. And you notice I say them. I make that same sound. And I say them because my dad says them. And I was thinking maybe my dad heard it from someone in the Communist Party who knew somebody who knew Lenin. Like maybe I say, hmm. Because Lennon said, hmm. <laughs> I think that's a, that's so cool. It's like a shape-shifting or trans, I don't know, migration of spirit from person to person. It's fascinating. And it's kind of connected to the breath, you know, because hmm really is, a, it's like it's almost a breath sound. It reminds me of this thing that Allen Ginsberg said, if I remember correctly, that he slept with someone who slept with someone who slept with Walt Whitman. You know, <laughs> that's terrific. That is, great. yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's not so much breath, um, but it's. I was reading this book. It was a transcription of a conversation between an anthropologist and a medicine man in Western Africa, in the country of Benin. And the book is called Conversations with Ogotemele. Hmm. 
and I think it was published maybe at some point in the 1950s or 60s, but it's a transcription. He was a, a Dogon medicine man in chief, and he describes that um, breathy language. Um, so I guess it's language that has the force of breath. Huh. If you don't speak it to someone, it will be out in the universe until it finds an ear. Huh. That, that, that the breath pushes the language out into the world, and then it, it just floats around until it's able to find the sill of an ear. And that ear might not be found for millennia or centuries. The language um, is uh, floating around in some cosmos of words. Mm-hmm. So you, you I totally you ascribe s- to that. If you speak you know, it out loud and you're by yourself, eventually someone will hear it like generations later, something like that. Like a, like, yeah, like a message in a bottle, but it could be like millennia. Like language is constantly snowing down, like descending from. (laughs) It's a very striking idea. Very beautiful. It's a little reminiscent of the Tibetan uh, terma. The termas are teachings that are hidden in various ways, in various dimensions but also on this earth, Hmm. so that one may, through dream transmission, be given the path or the location of a certain terma, and then you'll go and climb that hillside and approach the mountain from the left as the sun is shining in a certain place, and it'll lead you to a grotto, and then lead you to some crevice in the rock, where there's a scroll of a teaching left by the Dakini, you know, what are called the sky dancers, these female entities that uh, are one of the guardians of this dimension. You know, similarly, a a, um, farmer can be plowing in the field Mm. and will turn up these certain stones um, that are called Z. And they're very beautiful stones that are polished into these conical shapes, which then are, you know, you can put a string through. They get drilled out and you put a string around it. And that itself is a terma, is a teaching. It's impacted with potentiality of realization. That's incredible. Yeah. And these are just dug up, these Z? Yeah, 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 yeah. But I believe that there's termas that are left in the air. I've always believed that every place as we pass through life has a certain amount of poetic potentiality Mm -hmm. that by being in that place, you can articulate, you can say back to that place. And it's both a moment of liberation, because you've liberated those words from that place, but also one of of capturing and of holding and putting into this sort of semi-stable state called, you know, written words, or now Mm. I guess we have uh, digital ones, although who knows how long that's going to last. It's like the Grateful Dead, you know, like supposedly the Grateful Dead are named after this term in a book of folklore. There's such a particular kind of ghost called the Grateful Dead, and you, you're you somewhere, you meet this ghost, the ghost says, look, I buried $50,000 under this tree, and then I died an uh, untimely death, and please dig up the money and give it to my widow. And then you do it, you do what the ghost tells you, and then 
the ghost is grateful. The ghost is the grateful dead. And uh, <laughs> that it, it can uh, move on to the next level. It doesn't have to be chained to that tree anymore. It can evolve. Just, so that's Incredible. Just like Hamlet's father, that senior, right? What do you mean, yeah. Hamlet's father? Oh, he's stuck in like a purgatory until, you know, he's set free and until something is done. It's not entirely analogous, but is that true? Is it? Does it say that that he's he said that Hamlet's father, Hamlet's father's, and that ghost was played by Shakespeare. That's a tradition that the that the ghost was yeah. was performed by Shakespeare. Yeah, um, I think Stephen Greenblatt wrote a book about it, it. You know, in Catholic theology of that moment, or Church of England theology, Anglican theology. There was a belief that ghosts were people who had died and who had unfinished business. Something needed to be taken care of and for them to be liberated from purgatory. Mm-hmm. I see purgatory. Set free, grateful as a result, perhaps. But the Grateful Dead story, that's fascinating. I had never heard that before. And, you know, the uh, like one of the really interesting things about rock history is that both the Grateful Dead and... <laughs> The Velvet Underground were originally called the Warlocks. Both bands were called the Warlocks. But there was another uh, band called the Warlocks that I think was in England that no one's ever heard of. And they both, both bands had to change their names and both of them chose much better names. I didn't know that. That's a, that's a fascinating story as well. Yeah, I read that in the London Review of Books. The one thing I was going to say, Sparrow, is that your story may be apocryphal. My understanding is that the Grateful Dead, it comes from the Egyptian Book of the Dead, a line in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which is, in the land of the dead, the ship of the sun is driven by the Grateful Dead. Where did you hear that? You don't know where. Uh, I don't know. I, it's just kicking around in my head. I mean, I've seen, I've seen the encyclopedia really? of folklore somewhere, like in my vast studies of the Grateful Dead. Like some book showed you the passage from the encyclopedia of folklore that that they supposedly opened at random. They used a random method. The dead. Oh. Uh-huh. They said, "Let's just open this book at random and see what we get." The Augustinian wager. Is that right? Augustine, right? He just put his finger down randomly in the Bible to decide how to resolve his spiritual crisis. Or that's what he describes in the confessions. And what happens? Do you um, know? We need to like a line from um, Corinthians, I believe. Or maybe it was the Paul's letter to the Romans. I forget. But essentially it advocated a life of um, renunciation. Oh. Like, you know, give up your material excess and go to the basics and become a monk. Become That's a monk. what he did. He had a, well, he had his conversion and then, you know, then eventually became a bishop, right? So he had a pretty good deal. Bishops, I don't know at that time how they lived, but they weren't so renounced. Aren't so renounced, Bishop. No, I th- and he lived in Hippo. Uh, it was a very dangerous place, but yeah, because the Roman Empire fell. But uh, uh-huh. can I just ask you guys, how was your breathing? <laughs> Forgot all about it. Yeah, I still want to do my experiment, you know, for this podcast. And, and we're sort of like going at a pretty good clip. I thought we were going to do a, you know, double header. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I uh, I pulled some quotes from my some of my uncollected works or, you know, my right. writing that I thought related. You're breaking um, up. 
Do you know that? Yeah. Oh, me? No, that's hard Did to do. Did you hear it? So the one line I have, and I want you guys to, to take a big breath, like take a, a really conscious breath, and then I'll read this line, and then breathe again, allow the line to coil itself around your spinal column, to feel the, the line really traveling up and down, and uh, and then, you know, say back what you feel. So let's go ahead and do that. Okay. The song's one breath. Hmm. So, what'd you, hmm. what do you think? Well, I saw oscillating seagull wings. <laughs> wow. Like almost touching or interconnecting in any way or? Flapping side by side. Um, when, when you spoke those words, I was transported to where we were in Maine. Subtain oh. on the beach, instantaneously, and it felt um, quite lucid, actually. Ah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I was disappointed at first. It was so short, and I didn't understand it. And then I kind of let it enter me, and then I suddenly felt very like warm and loving about uh -huh. it or about something. I felt like it well, kind of like a seed planted itself in me. I mean, I, I like the phrase because it's, um, you know, because it's got that possessive. Um. So I, I think the song is one breath. I believe hmm. that, you know, that the breath is an inherently musical composition and perhaps the basis for all composition in some, hmm. you know, um, at some remove. I mean, the breath is the sound that's the closest to us. You know, it's what is coming in and out of us. At any rate, I think the song is one breath, you know, that, that that's a, that there's a total structure. And then also that there is the, the one breath of the song. That what is do you mean? That the song of one breath, the song of one breath, one breath of the song is what we experience of the song, the song that exists through Many lives through many dimensions, through all of our experience, all human and biological mm -hmm. experience, but we experience it as one breath, one, the one breath, breath of that, that we multitude. do over and over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then at the same time, it, it's always the same breath, really, to be born and to experience and then to die. You know, mm -hmm. which is the shape of a breath, also. I did bring a poem by Lao Tzu. I mean, it was the one thing I found that uh, had breath in it. This is number 10. This is my favorite translation of uh, the Tao Te Ching. It's this guy, R.B. Blackney, who uh -huh. was a uh, missionary in China, fell in love with Lao Tzu. And so there's sort of Christian overtones in it, I think. Number 10. Can you govern your animal soul, hold to the one and never depart from it? Can you throttle your breath down to the softness of breath in a child? Can you purify your mystic vision and wash it until it is spotless? Can you love all your people, rule over the land without being known? Can you be like a female and passively open? and shut heaven's gates.
Can you keep clear in your mind the four quarters of earth and not interfere? Quicken them, feed them. Quicken, but do not possess them. Act and be independent. Be the chief, but never the Lord. This describes the mystic virtue. I, I thought it was read very beautifully. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I love, uh, I love this, this book that I read when I was 12 years old. It's the, uh, mentor paperback. This edition was 35 cents. I think the one I had might have been 25 cents. The one I read at my grandmother's house in Philadelphia when I was 12 and that kind of ruined my life. <laughs> I decided I was going to try to follow all this impossible advice and become a humble nothing instead of a noble surgeon, which I would have otherwise been. <laughs> and uh, my whole life kind of comes out of a misunderstanding of Lao Tzu. But at least, you know, I have this kind of intimate relationship to it from living my life in honor of it. Can you throttle your breath down to the softness of breath in a child. Interesting oh. question, you know? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, that the child become the father of the man. Yeah. yeah. So I've got another zinger. Should I should I give you this one? Oh, yeah. I'll Let's keep going go with your well zingers. As I would have okay. So get into the big breath, and then I'll just read this. Flow is flower in this maze of breath. Hmm. I'll read that again. Well, I mean, there's two ways of reading that. Okay, hmm. so I'll read this the other way. Flow is flower in this maze of breath. Hmm. In other words, that's a sort of graphalectic signature, you know, that you can't see if you speak it, but you can see it if you read it. So there's hmm. that flow, flower, flower in this in this in a maze. It's a maze. We're sitting with Descartes. We don't know which way to go. I'm breathing. Hmm. I'm thinking. I don't know. <laughs> and hmm. those wonderful open vowel sounds. Oh yeah. The the language fragment, the zinger, really does flower. Hmm. On a sonic level, that the open vowel sounds open like a wine opens. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. like Rumi. Rumi wishes to be drunk on the breath of Sham. Oh, right. Sham, his guru. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, I got kind of caught up in the word maze, thinking how it also is kind of a homonym for corn. Uh, and mm. uh, I kind of got tripped myself up into pointlessly falling over my own mental feet. And then the second time you read it with flower, that really knocked me out. <laughs> I was just like, whoa, flower. I don't think I'd ever heard anyone say the word flower. I guess it's a word. I'm not even sure if it is actually a real word. A person who flows or a thing that flows uh, is a flower, I guess. But I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I've ever heard it. And I think something about 
the strangeness of it and yet inevitability of it really hit me. Nice. I couldn't have been happier with that was like really that was a home run. I better quit now. Quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, I better uh, light my candles. I'll be back. It's just going to take a moment. Um, um, happy um, Sabbath. Oh, thank you. Shabbat Shalom. Very good. Well, I live on the <laughs> Upper West Side. Oh, that's true. I, I'm yeah. always in, I've been. I'm rarely asked out, but I'm asked into a lot of minions. You know? Really? Yeah. A lot. Of, are you Jewish? We're looking for one more person. It's happened. I don't know. It happened a few times here. I love it. It's you're like walking down the street. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you were to, in, you know, say, oh, yeah, I'll step up. Would that be like a, a no-no because you're not Jewish? Do you, you need to say at that point, well, I'm not Jewish. I'd be happy to hang out with you guys, but I'm not Jewish. Would you say that? Um, I do. Yeah. And they're like, oh, okay. No, we need we need to sign, find someone who's Jewish. Maybe if it was like a real liberal synagogue, they'd be like, fine. Or they probably wouldn't need a minion, right? They would just. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think you know, it's Judaism, so there's like a thousand different opinions. You know, someone, you know, the you know the proverb something like three Jews, five opinions. This is a minion for every opinion. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Did you yeah, it was that? very weird, right? That the uh, the Cuomo said uh, any house of worship with ten people or less can meet. You know, it was like you know because of coronavirus, and it's like it, he like was specifically making sure that everybody could have a minion. That's, I think that's terrific. Otherwise, he will get uh, he'll get he won't get reelected. That's um, how the and that's what happened to his father. With what he lost the Jewish vote. Mary Mary Cuomo lost the um, um, ultra orthodox vote in Sullivan County. You know that area that yeah. great Hasidic. Area. He he lost that vote and some of the Hasidic vote in New York City, and that's what swung the election to Pataki. Is that right? Huh. Yeah, it was all about that block, that you know, the the ultra orthodox, the Hasidim. What and it was do? over uh-huh. it was over rights around dumping. Like <laughs> um they had I guess their own dumps and there were people who were trying to shut that down. Um Cuomo was against you know, he wanted to regulate it all. And Pataki uh-huh. Pataki said he would be open to that self governance and that I think uh-huh. that's that election was over. That's what wow. I didn't even remember that Cuomo lost. I, I just assumed that he quit at one point. No, he um yeah he lost to Pataki and then I guess went into the private sector. Hey man, what I say is don't mess with the Hasid's junk. <laughs> yeah, they don't like it when you mess with their junk. Well, they vote as a you know as a block. I mean, I've heard that that's. That they're the reason that, uh, you know, Israel is fascist, that uh, Netanyahu wins because, you know, it's a parliamentary system. So it's like a coalition of various forces. And since they all so it comes out pretty even. But since the, the ultra Orthodox all vote together as one block, they have enormous power. So they they vote Netanyahu for Bubby. 
I mean, you know, not every one of them. There's like two opinions. You know, there are, there are the anti-Zionist Hasidim, but they're very few. So you guys, just to, just to circle back, I, there was one thing I wanted to say is that in the course of a traditional or a normal, a day-in, day-out, work-a-day breath, we only exchange about 17% of the air in our lungs in any breath. Hmm. Really? Yeah. What happens to the other air? I tell you, there's a certain amount of air that's just hanging out and it gets super duper stale. And then mm. a bunch of it is sort of taken up in this swirling, you know, dynamism of the lungs and, you know, movement. But there is like, down and down in around here your breath sometimes can sort of linger for you know some of the some of the air molecules can linger for a long time for sure full exhalation periodically is the good uh therapy yeah i went to this woman on the upper west side actually who was teaching me the alexander technique rest position which i still do every day oh who when was this this was like in 1998, something like that. Well, with Sam and I have a mutual friend who teaches the Alexander Technique on the Upper West Side. Oh, yeah. I can't remember. that. I was just thinking about her today. She was like the kindest person I ever met. and I mean, present company accepted. Kindest woman I ever met. And she taught Pilates before that anybody had ever heard of Pilates. Uh, Alexander Technique. And what was her job? Her job was to test recipes for cookbooks. They would give her the recipe, she would make it, and then she would tell them whether it was any good. She had such a surreal life and in this tiny apartment. And then she would have me do the Alexander Technique rest position. And occasionally, or once or twice, she had me attempt to like utterly exhale and get all that bad air out of my lungs that that sam is talking about and it was hard to do you know you're lying on your back with your head on a few paperback books and uh so that your spine is straight that's the alexander technique rest position you know it along these lines um in the four quartet somewhere and sam you have a pretty good memory of that poem t.s Eliot uses a german word for huh. ex- exhalation which which has a similar connotation, my memory seems to suggest, of like huh. breath, breathing all of the like bilge out, huh. like all of the, the butt ends, right? Just like breathing all of the dirt, everything you've inhaled out as a purifying act. What's the word? I don't know offhand. Maybe it's the only German word in uh, the four quartets and you just look up German word in four quartets. I'm already anticipating this. I want to get the tattoo of this word on my <laughs> I can't quite find it, so I'll find it for our next podcast. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.